How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. Hello, this is David Rubenstein. I'm going to be in conversation today with Alan Taylor a professor at the University of Virginia in American history. And we're going to talk about his book, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Professor Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning. What prompted you to become a scholar of early American history? Well, I I grew up reading books about the American frontier in the uh, early 19th century and late 18th century. And uh, I just uh, fell in love with those stories and uh, welcomed the opportunity to develop a career where I could explore it professionally. Okay. Uh, you are a rare scholar and historian, I think it's fair to say, for you've won two Pulitzer Prizes for your books on American history. Uh, it's rare to win one, but to win two, very, very unique. The first one was for William Cooper's Town, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early American Republic. What was that book about? And were you surprised when you were told you won the Pulitzer Prize? Yes, everybody, everybody's surprised when they when they hear that, that the odds are very much against it. Um, the, the book is um, it's about uh, Cooperstown, New York, and the founder of Cooperstown, who named the town after himself, was William Cooper. And he founded right after the American Revolution. He was the father of a very large family, and it included uh, James Fenimore Cooper, who became the, the great novelist of the early 19th century in the United States, the first professional novelist. And one of the books he wrote was The Pioneers, one of the leather stocking tales. It's the, the first of them that he published. And in it, his father appears as a character, as Judge Marmaduke Temple, the founder of Templeton which is a place right where Cooperstown is. So I saw an opportunity to write about the actual creation of a frontier community after the American Revolution, and then how that process was reimagined in American literature and one of the great founding works of American literature, The Pioneers. Um, as many baseball fans will know, Cooperstown is the site of the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, was baseball really invented in Cooperstown? Uh, no, you'll be pleased to know it was invented right around New York City. Uh, but in the early 20th century, professional baseball, right in the aftermath of the so-called Black Sox scandal, uh, wanted to find a more bucolic origin for baseball. And so they latched a hold of a pretty groundless myth that Abner Doubleday had assembled people in a cow pasture in Cooperstown to invent baseball. Uh, actually, there's a much better claim that Cooperstown could make to have tried to prevent the invention of baseball because early in the 19th century, the town had banned the playing of ball uh, in the streets of Cooperstown. Well, I'm very disillusioned to hear that. 
you won another Pulitzer Prize for the internal enemy, slavery and war in Virginia, 1772 to 1832. What was the main point you were trying to show in that book? And were you surprised to have won a second Pulitzer Prize? Uh, yeah, you're twice as surprised that lightning strikes twice. That book is about enslaved people in Virginia and Maryland who escaped uh, and fled to British warships operating at Chesapeake Bay during the War of 1812. And so it's it's a story that inverts how we usually like to think, which is that the British are the bad guys and representatives of a tyrannical monarchy, whereas the Americans are the champions of liberty. Well, in this case, enslaved people are escaping from the Americans and going to the British. Now, it it's, ends up being a complicated story. The British aren't entirely good guys in this story. Uh, but the enslaved people who ran to them felt that their interests were served if they could assist the British in their war against the United States. Okay. In the book we're going to talk about today, uh, which is American Republics, is there a major point you are trying to convey throughout this book? I'm trying to convey that the early United States was a tenuous operation a looser union of the states than it would become during and after the Civil War. I think we usually tend to assume that the creation of the federal constitution in 1787 and its ratification uh, created a very solid United States, uh, one where there was national unity and people identified as Americans. And what I found is that people still continue to identify primarily with their states, that there was a great deal of jealousy and resentment and fear of people who lived in other regions of the United States. And so that the union was very much a balancing act, trying to balance power uh, within the country and found this increasingly difficult to do uh, as the country expanded because there was a fear that one region might grow stronger than another region and end up domineering over the minority region in the country. You think it's fair to say that Americans' knowledge of this period, the period between 1783 and 1850, is far less than the Americans' knowledge of the Revolutionary War period or the Civil War period? And why do you think that is, if it is the case? Well, I think it's certainly the case, but it's understandable. The, the revolution, the Civil War, are the headline events of uh, the first century of the United States. And so anything else on either side of those events, the colonial period is also not all that well understood. Uh, and then the period after the revolution and, and until the coming of the Civil War is is something seen as a hiatus between these highlights. Okay. Why don't we dig into the uh, first part of uh, your book? Uh, you talk at the beginning about the capital city of the United States. In the early days of the Republic, what was the intention for the capital city and who really drove the capital city into being? And was there really a need for a separate capital city in your view? Well, they could have made do perfectly well with either New York City, which started out as, as the first capital under the new constitution, and then it moved to Philadelphia and Philadelphia would have made a perfectly fine capital city. But uh, that did not sit well with people who lived in uh, the more rural South. They uh, felt that uh, these very commercial cities were aberrational uh, in a country that at that time was overwhelmingly rural. And they felt, this is a, a longstanding conviction in American politics, that um, 
well-educated, well-connected, wealthy uh, Americans clustered together in cities were going to run things for their own benefit. So they very much wanted to establish a new capital in a new place that would not grow into a large city, but would remain uh, a smaller place and more accessible to rural Americans and, and certainly further to the south. So the prime mover in this, um, there were really two, I would say. One is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson very much is fearful of cities uh, and fearful of the cosmopolitan uh, wealthy people who lived in them. And he wanted to move the capital much closer to Virginia. Now, in this, he, he found somebody who agreed with him, who didn't always agree with him, didn't usually agree with him, and that's George Washington. Uh, Washington was was quite intrigued by the notion of having the capital on the Potomac River, very close to his home at Mount Vernon. So Washington's on board with this. Uh, Jefferson's on board with it. Uh, the person that has to be brought along is Alexander Hamilton. And so a political deal is struck where Hamilton's fiscal program for the new United States um, would receive just enough support from Virginians in exchange for the capital moving out of Philadelphia and going to be in this new place that would be called Washington, D.C. on the Potomac. Okay. So at this period of time, was there a general view within the country, in your view, that there was a need for a much stronger union to compete with other countries? Or was the general feeling that if we had too strong a union, it might become uh, oppressive to uh, individuals in the country? I would say both. And, and, and we've been living with contradictions in this country from the start. And one of the prime contradictions is most people very much wanted a union that would be strong enough to protect them from each other. In that there was real fear that if you didn't have a union of the states, that the states would go to war with each other and that you would be replicating the bloody history of Europe where relatively small countries warred with each other for a balance of power. So the union is meant to avoid that. There's also a fear that um, neighbors, the British Empire persisted in North America. It's in Canada, on uh, the maritime provinces. It's Bermuda, the Bahamas, in the Caribbean. Uh, there's the Spanish Empire to the south. There's the possibility that the French would make a comeback in North America. So there was fear that there are powerful neighbors at a time when the United States is not a superpower. It's it's one of the weaker countries in the world. And yet it's got a lot of territory. It's stretched thin. So the union is meant to solve those problems. But the fear is that if you give too much power, for example, you create a large army and a large navy, and you entrust that power to a group of men governing at the national capital, that this country will become powerful enough to impose uh, things that, that people living in the states don't want to happen. So, for example, in Virginia, there's fear that perhaps heavy taxes would be placed on uh, enslaved people. Uh, this would, of course, would be paid by their masters. Or uh, in South Carolina and Georgia, there was a fear that uh, the importation of Africans as enslaved people, a halt would be put to that right away. So there is an ongoing tension between the desire to have a union that's strong enough to protect Americans from each other and to protect them from foreign potential enemies and enable them to expand westward at the expense of Native Americans on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the fear that this federal government might become tyrannical 
So during the uh, Revolutionary War, the colonies were governed together to the extent they were through the Articles of Confederation. But I guess after the war was over in 1783, the Treaty of Paris is signed, many people began to feel that the Articles of Confederation were so weak that country couldn't really do anything. It couldn't do any taxing. It couldn't really raise a military. So who were the major people that led to the Constitutional Convention being held? And what was their real motive? Was it to amend the Articles of Confederation or to come up with a whole new document we now call the Constitution? Well, the men who were concerned about the weakness of the Articles, and they'd be people like George Washington or Henry Knox in Massachusetts or Alexander Hamilton in New York. They all wanted uh, to amend the Articles, and they tried, but the process required un unanimity. All 13 states had to approve a change. And a couple of changes that were proposed to give the tax power to the Confederation Congress, under the Articles, it, it had no power to tax. Well, it's hard to run a government if you can't collect taxes. It depended instead on payments provided by the states. And the states, many of them stopped paying in full. It was a situation that's comparable to today's United Nations, which can't tax people, but depends upon contributions from member states. So it was with the Articles of Confederation. So people like Madison and Hamilton were pushing to get an amendment to the Articles of Confederation that would allow it to collect a tax, bypassing the states. On a couple of occasions, they, they got 12 states to say yes, and one state said no. And in one case, it was Rhode Island, the smallest of the states. So they, they largely thought amending the Articles is just not going to work. So when uh, a group of these men gathered in Philadelphia in 1787, they were pretty quickly persuaded by James Madison that what they needed to do was come up with a brand new constitution that would scrap the Articles of Confederation. Now, the constitution that they developed over a four-month period in secrecy in Philadelphia was one that came about, if I understand it correctly, because the people from the North were willing to accept the view of the people from the South that slavery had to be allowed to continue. And any effort to minimize slavery or reduce the importance of it to people from the South would result in there not being any constitution. Is that a fair summary? Well, I wouldn't say that's the, the only thing that they have to wrestle with. There's a, a split between the large states and the small states. The smaller states were feared domination by the larger states, which at that time meant New York, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia in particular. So that's one thing they've, they've got to resolve. And the second thing is tensions between North and South, because Southerners were fearful that if they went along with creating a strong federal government, that that government might interfere in some way with slavery in the future. And they, they needed some reassurance on that score. So they had to overcome, I would say, those two great challenges if they were going to get enough of the delegates to approve what was a very controversial document at the time. So at the end of the Constitutional Convention, a few people uh, said we should have a Bill of Rights. And ironically, uh, James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution, argued against that. Why was he against having a Bill of Rights? And why did he subsequently become the author of the Bill of Rights after the Constitution was initially ratified? Well, well, it's not just Madison who at the convention says, let's not bother with the Bill of Rights. The, the other delegates didn't really want to do a Bill of Rights, the great majority of them. And this is Madison's reason. 
if you draw up a list of rights, you'll leave something out that somebody wants. And they knew they were going to have a difficult job of getting this constitution ratified. So they felt that if they would just be quiet about rights and say, in effect, rights are something for the states to take care of. And, and the federal government is set up in a way that's not going to interfere with rights. Well, it turns out a lot of people didn't believe that. So during the ratification process, the, the supporters of this new constitution, were called the Federalists, had to backtrack and say, okay, let's just ratify this. And then the first order of business will be, we'll draft a bill of rights. And um, Madison is the guy who wants the constitution ratified. He's in the House of Representatives. And he takes charge of the process of drafting a bill of rights. And he wants to make very clear that it's to be a bill of individual rights, because there were alternatives that wanted to spell out more robust state rights that he felt would gut the Constitution just at the moment that it had been ratified. So uh, ultimately, a bill of rights is drafted by Madison. Ultimately, uh, Congress proposed 12 and 10 of them are approved by uh, ratification by the states. So the Bill of Rights did become part of the Constitution. Let's move forward a bit, if we could, and talk about Canada for a moment. The United States seemed at times to be interested in taking over Canada, invading Canada. What was the, the desire by the people in the original 13 states to take over Canada, and why did they not succeed in doing so? There, there was a, a pretty broad conviction that um, British rule was unnatural, was artificial, and uh, therefore, in the future, at some point, Canada would want to become part of the United States. And the question then becomes, is there anything that American policymakers should do to accelerate that presumably natural process? And there is a fear that if the British persist in North America, that uh, they are in a prime position to intrigue with Native American peoples, and perhaps also to provoke slave revolts within the United States. They're in a prime position to create trouble for the United States. So in the wake of the revolution, there's a, there's a lot of bad feeling toward the British and a lot of deep distrust. So to have the British as your next door neighbors seemed unacceptable to lots of Americans. And the question becomes, you know, should you go to all of the risk and bloodshed and cost of war to achieve that end? And generally the answer of the Washington administration, the Adams administration, and the, even the Jefferson administration is, no, it's not worth it. Uh, we'll just wait and see. And we, we have this robust trade with Britain. Why, why do we want to interfere with that? And that robust trade was essential to American revenue. Uh, British investment is essential to American economic development. So there are a lot of counter reasons not to confront the British. And there's one other reason, which is that Southerners, they're keen to confront the British, but they're not so keen to add more Northern states because that would tilt the balance of power in the Union. So there's some ambivalence about going to war with Britain. Uh, when they do go to war with Britain in 1812. But put also in context for everybody listening, the Constitutional Convention did not really anticipate, as I understand it, that there would be political parties. But the country quickly evolved in the way that there were political parties. And the political party of George Washington and John Adams 
was what was called the Federalist Party. And those who were on the opposite uh, spectrum were called the Republicans. And that was uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Can you articulate what was the distinction between the Federalists and the Republicans and why were they so bitterly fighting each other? They're fighting each other because the United States is an experiment. And everybody knew it was a risky experiment. And so they're very fearful that if the wrong set of politicians start running the United States, that, that they'll destroy it. You know, not in, probably not intending to destroy it, but but they will. So the 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 key difference between the two parties, well, I'll say there's several. Uh, the Federalists are the party of let's build a robust national government, one with a professional army, professional navy, uh, and one which will call the shots and the states will have to follow along. And the opposition Republican Party or Democratic Republican Party were fearful of that concentration of power because they said that's what we rebelled against in the American Revolution and we don't want to replicate it and just move it closer to home. They're also successful in casting the Federalists as a bunch of elitists who, uh, who seem to be too open in their admiration for Great Britain and its naval and uh, military power and its wealth and its Bank of England. So they say, do we really want to go the, the British route of, of social and economic development, or do we just want to keep to our rural ways in the United States? So that, that's the fundamental division. The, the Republicans then look at the Federalists and say, unless we stop them, they're going to bring in monarchy and aristocracy, and we're going to look like Britain. And then the Federalists would look over at the Republicans and say, if we let them prevail, we're going to go back into the anarchy of the Articles of Confederation, or we'll replicate the bloodshed of the French Revolution because those Republicans are a little too open in celebrating the French Revolution despite all of its excesses. Well, when George Washington finished his eighth year as president, uh, he obviously could have been elected a, another term, but he chose to retire. Uh, he was succeeded by John Adams, who was also a Federalist and had been his vice president. But John Adams was less popular than George Washington, I think it's fair to say. He wasn't the war hero that George Washington was. What did John Adams do to, to kind of minimize criticism of him and to kind of thwart the idea that people could do whatever they want, say whatever they want? And, and be a political rival. What what did he do that was so controversial? Well, I, I would say he went along with what the, the Federalists and, and the Congress wanted to do, which is to um, criminalize criticism of the federal government, which was being run by the Federalists at the time. And John Adams went along with that. And, and John Adams has a very thin skin, as did other Federalist leaders. And they're coming out of this older tradition uh, from Britain, which says that if you discredit the government, you will be inviting anarchy. You'll be inviting people to rise up in bloody revolt, highly destructive revolt. So Federalists are people who are very pessimistic about human nature. And they fear that if the government gets discredited in the eyes of people, that you'll have revolution, civil war, anarchy, massive destruction. And so they believe that by suppressing criticism of the government, they're preserving social order. Now, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were in the George Washington cabinet, but they were 
bitter rivals, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Hamilton was more of a Federalist and Jefferson more of a Republican. Yet after uh, John Adams had served his first term, uh, Thomas Jefferson, his vice president, ran against John Adams. And ironically, Alexander Hamilton, who didn't really like Jefferson, decided that it'd be a good idea to get Thomas Jefferson elected. It'd be better than having uh, Adams stay in power. So what did Hamilton do to help get Jefferson to become president of the United States? Well, I'd phrase it a little bit differently. Alexander Hamilton was a difficult guy to get along with, as was John Adams, and and they hated each other. And Adams came to conclude, pretty rightly, that behind the scenes, Alexander Hamilton was dominating uh, the cabinet from behind the scenes, because Hamilton's not in the cabinet anymore. But key members of the cabinet um, found Hamilton to be a more um, admirable leader than John Adams. And so they were basically following the playbook that Hamilton was putting forward for them, including these confrontational laws uh, to uh, criminalize uh, dissent in the country. Hamilton's very much for that. So Hamilton comes to conclude that Adams is a a pompous incompetent, and he does want to replace him, but he doesn't want to replace him with Jefferson, who who he also really disliked as as a dangerous man with dangerous views about the government. What he wanted to do was replace him with another Federalist named Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who was running ostensibly as the vice president on John Adams's ticket. And he had this clever game where he was going to persuade Federalist electors to withhold a few votes for John Adams, and then Pinckney would be elected president. Well, the guy who gets wind of this scheme is a New York politician, rival of Hamilton's, Aaron Burr, who is running as Jefferson's running mate, um, ostensibly to become vice president. But under the Constitution, as originally written, there is no option for the electors to distinguish their votes. They, they have two votes each of them, and they just cast them for two different men. But they can't say one I intend to be president, the other be vice president, because the Constitution was meant to be where the two most popular gentlemen would become president and vice president. They didn't know there'd be this collaboration by parties, one is the president, one is the vice president on tickets. So this political process has evolved in ways which the Constitution didn't anticipate and didn't want to happen, but it has happened. So then when Burr and Jefferson are in a dead heat, although most of the people who were Republicans wanted Jefferson as president and Burr as vice president, it becomes a constitutional crisis. And that's when Hamilton weighs in and tells his fellow Federalists, look, Jefferson's terrible, but Burr's worse. So, you know, just hold your noses and let Jefferson become president. So it's not that he wanted Jefferson as president. It's just that he's the lesser of the three evils he can imagine, which is John Adams, Aaron Burr, and then there's Jefferson. Now, of course, everyone who's seen the Hamilton play and anyone who knows something about American history knows Aaron Burr became famous for something else as well. It says he had a duel with Alexander Hamilton. What happened and how did Burr escape ever going to jail for killing Hamilton? Well, dueling is a fairly common practice in the early republic and especially among politicians. 
who uh, tend to insult one another. And if you do that, you're impugning a man's honor and an honor can be then defended on the dueling field. So that that Burke ends up killing Hamilton is in a way unusual. Most duels ended up crippling somebody, but not killing them. Uh, and uh, it's it's done over in New Jersey for a reason. Um, because the, the, these two men were residents of New York. And it was common practice if you were going to duel, you'd, you'd row across the Hudson and, and duel in New Jersey. And Burr just av- avoids prosecution by moving out of New York and, and out of New Jersey and, and heading to Point South. So uh, he he loses in the court of public opinion, however. A lot of people who, who didn't much like Hamilton also just don't like the idea of one politician killing another one. And so so Burr's political collapse, which had already started, uh, is accelerated by his killing of Hamilton. So when Jefferson becomes president, although he is in favor of a weaker executive, he does the most consequential thing any president had ever done to that date. He buys the Louisiana territory, the Louisiana Purchase, which doubles the size of the country's territory without any authority in the Constitution to do that. How did he justify buying the Louisiana Territory, and why was it so consequential for the United States? Uh, It's a very important question, and it was something, in retrospect, it seems hard to imagine. Jefferson's, in a way, is embarrassed by Louisiana Purchase. He hadn't sought to buy all of that territory, and Louisiana Purchase was considered all the territory west of the Mississippi River which at that time was about Western boundary of the United States. But everything between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains was called Louisiana, including what is now the state of Louisiana at the mouth of the Mississippi River. There was a crisis where the French had grabbed possession, legal possession of Louisiana, which once upon a time had been a French colony, but had become Spanish. And so the French took it back from the Spanish. And France is under the control of this very powerful megalomaniacal leader, Napoleon, who thinks he's going to rebuild his empire in North America to match the empire he's building in Europe. That's bad, bad news for the United States. And what's especially bad news is if this powerful French empire controls New Orleans at the mouth of the river. So Jefferson just wanted to buy New Orleans and some territory around it. And he said, then we'll be good. You can keep the rest of Louisiana, knowing it's basically worthless without New Orleans. But Napoleon says no. Uh, He he reconsidered his imperial plans in North America and said, buy it all, take it or leave it. And Jefferson's diplomats, uh, including Secretary of State Madison, say, this is such a good deal. You've got to take it. And Jefferson's first reaction is, but I don't have any constitutional authority to do that. And I've been arguing for a strict construction of the Constitution. How can I buy this territory when I've been arguing the federal government can't do anything unless it's explicitly authorized in the Constitution? So let's get an amendment. Well, Napoleon had put a time limit, said, you you know, you've got to take it or leave it, you know, by the fall, and you're not going to get an amendment. So what Jefferson did was he just sent this treaty, it's a treaty of purchase, to the Senate without saying anything. He's saying, you know, I'd I'd like you to consider this. And then the Senate overwhelmingly passed it. And so that's how the Louisiana Purchase happened. And then Jefferson signed off on it once it had been done. But it's something of an embarrassing moment in the short term. But the thing about Jefferson is, at the end of the day, he's a politician. Very good one. 
much better than I think he's given credit for often. And he saw that this is so much in the American interest to have all of this territory uh, and to keep it from passing potentially into British hands or back into Spanish hands, uh, that this is going to accelerate America's expansion westward, which Jefferson was very much in favor of. So um, eventually, uh, Jefferson says we ought to figure out what's actually in the territory we just purchased. So he asked two individuals, who were they, to go and explore what's in the territory? And what did they discover after quite a long expedition back and forth? Well, he turns to a, a young man that he trusts greatly. It's his personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis. He says, I'd like you to lead this exploration expedition uh, to consist of members of the U.S. Army, mostly. And Lewis said, well, I want to have a co-command with a friend of mine, a guy named William Clark, another Virginian. Jefferson said, fine. And so they will lead this expedition. Uh, it's initially authorized before the Louisiana Purchase. So Jefferson is trying to figure out what's out there even before he's in a position to actually you know, own this territory. But before this expedition actually departs, then, uh, in fact, uh, the purchase has happened and, and makes this more of a legal operation. And they're trying to figure out who are the Native peoples there. And the most important thing they want to figure out is, is there a way that's commercially viable to get across the continent uh, and to engage in trade along the Pacific coast, across the Pacific, with Asia? And that's what Lewis and Clark are ultimately supposed to do, is, is to figure out what lies between the Mississippi River and the Pacific coast and develop the kind of expertise necessary to get Americans to the Pacific coast. So on this uh, part of our discussion, I'd like to ask you one final question. Uh, and that is, after Jefferson serves two terms as president, he's succeeded by his good friend and Secretary of State, James Madison. How does Madison manage to get us into a war, the War of 1812, we declare war against Britain? What were we thinking about why we were going to possibly win that war when we had virtually no military? And how did that war wind up? Well, partly it's Jefferson's fault in that Jefferson, with Madison's support, is pursuing a fairly confrontational foreign policy with Britain, although Britain is a superpower, which is a dangerous thing to do. But Britain was preoccupied by its war against Napoleon's France. Jefferson and Madison tried to engage in a kind of commercial warfare with something known as the embargo, which shut off all foreign trade into the United States, which you, you couldn't imagine an American president doing that today for months on end. But that's what Jefferson and Madison did, and it failed. It didn't move Britain at all. Britain continued to do the kind of maritime practices that Madison and, and Jefferson saw as uh, interfering with American sovereignty uh, in the form of its ships, merchant ships on the high seas. So what are you going to do after commercial warfare has failed? And by that point, Jefferson had retired and gone back to Monticello. So Mad it's, it's Madison's problem, along with Congress. And they decide, a majority in Congress and Madison, that the only alternative is war. Although the United States had a very small navy, approximately 20 warships, where Britain had 1,000. The United States had a very small army, essentially 10,000 troops. And, and Britain had probably at that point, you know, it had certainly over 100,000 troops. 
But most of Britain's warships and troops were, were busy in Europe fighting Napoleon. So this seemed like a, a golden opportunity for the United States to strike Britain while Britain was in a vulnerable position. And that's June of 1812, and they declare war, and they decide the primary way they're going to wage this war is not on the high seas, where the, the British Navy is, is just too powerful. Instead, they're primarily going to wage it by invading Canada, which was a set of British colonies at the time, from the conviction that if you took over Canada, you'd at least stop the British from helping Native American peoples resist American expansion. That's the minimal goal. And then there's the second goal is maybe, maybe you can then use this as a bargaining chip to compel the British to give in on these maritime issues. So let's uh, finish our conversation there. We'll come back for a part two of our conversation where we'll continue through the remainder of your book. But I want to thank you for giving us insights into this part of American history. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Taylor. Well, thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.